Hey, good morning, everybody. We're working our way through Jesus' most famous sermon. And uh, it's so important to understand with this sermon that um, the context and the backdrop for it are the kingdom of God. And the reason that's so important is uh, there's two things of, uh, of, that are vitally important in the kingdom. And one of those is relationships. Just uh, relationships in the kingdom are more important than the most important thing. In fact, every single command that Jesus is going to give in this sermon is centered on elevating the value of relationships, on loving relationships. Let me say this differently. Relationships are at the epicenter of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Relationships are at the epicenter of what it means to participate in the kingdom of God. And then the second thing we said that's so important in the kingdom is changed hearts. The focus in the kingdom isn't just on our behavior. It's it's on our hearts. And so last week, for example, uh, you know, Jesus talked about anger. Some of you may remember that. And this week, we're going to talk about lust. Now, originally, I had paired uh, lust and divorce together today, but as I began to study and prayerfully prepare for this weekend, I really felt like God was leading me away from to really focus more on the topic of lust today. And then what we're going to do is Daniel is scheduled to teach next Sunday. Then the following Sunday after that, in two weeks, I'm going to circle back around to this section on divorce. So I'm just going to make a couple of brief observations about divorce today, but we're really, really going to focus on uh, lust. But one thing I want to point out, you know, if people dealt with the anger in their heart and they dealt with the lust in their heart, there'd be no need for divorce. Like every single time somebody ends up in a divorce court, it's either because they're angry or because they've been uh, cheated on and they just can't overcome the hurt and the pain of that betrayal and that hurt, right? So if we can eliminate those things, uh, divorce is going to take care of itself, isn't it? And I think that's good news. Now, the reason Jesus talks about divorce the way that he does, well, there are several reasons. I'm only going to cover one. But divorce represents, more than anything else, a broken relationship. And it does irreparable damage to the heart, right? Uh, and so remember, and there's nothing more important in the kingdom than relationships and the heart. Now, um, I do have good news, ladies, because there are some entrepreneurs out there that are going after this topic of uh, divorce uh, in some creative ways. So, ladies, you may not know this, but a store just opened up in New York City where if you want a husband or you're looking for a husband, you can actually go there and shop for one. It's called the Husband Store. Now, but before you go planning a road trip to New York, you need to know there are some guidelines for shopping in this store. There are six floors in this store, and once you leave a floor and go up a floor, you can't go back down. So there's no ability to, you know, check out all the merchandise before deciding what you want. So a woman went to the husband's store. She found a sign on the first floor that read, these men have jobs. You know, I mean, that's pretty good, you know, but the more she thought about it, she, that's kind of setting the bar kind of low. So she decided to go on up to the second floor. And on that floor, she found a sign that read, these men have jobs and they love kids. 
Well, you know, she thought, this is getting sweeter by the minute. But, you know, at this point, she just had to see what was on floor number three. So when she got to that floor, the sign there read, these men have jobs, they love kids, and they're extremely good looking. By now, her heart is starting to race. Just to, I mean, she's starting to really get excited, you know. But she feels compelled to go up to the fourth floor. And on that floor, the sign read, these men have jobs, they love kids, they're extremely good looking, and they help with the housework. Come on, ladies. I mean, it's starting to get really good now, right? I mean, she's starting to feel flush. She can hardly believe her luck, yet... She just had to know what was up on the fifth floor. So she goes up there to find a sign that says, these men have jobs, they love kids, they're extremely good looking, they help with the housework, and they have a strong romantic streak. Be still, right? Just incredible stuff. But she thought to herself, well, you know, this is, this is like too good to be true, but it just keeps getting better every floor I go up to. So I have to see, I have to know what's on the sixth floor. When she got to the sixth and final floor, the sign there read, you are visitor number 31,346,999 on this floor. There are no men on this floor. This floor exists solely to demonstrate that women are impossible to please. But the owner of the husband's store began to get complaints that there was no wife store. In New York, so in the interest of fairness and equal inequality, he built a wife store right across the street from the husband store. So once again, you know, there were six floors with all the same rules as the husband store. So a man walks into the wife store, and and on the on the first floor reads a sign that says, "These wives love sex." He's pretty thrilled with the sign on that floor, but he figures it's pretty shallow to pick a wife based solely on one characteristic, so he decides to go up to the second floor. And the sign there read, these wives love sex and they have money. Floors three through six have never been visited. So listen, uh, here's what Jesus is going to get at today. He's going to get at this, that lust, like anger, is toxic if we let it accumulate in our heart. And I want to tell you a story to start to, to set up what Jesus is about to say. So some of you know that when I was a little boy, I had a grandfather that loved to fish, and he often would take me with him. And my grandfather would sometimes tell me, look, to catch a fish, you have to think like a fish. And then here's what he would say, a fish is nothing but a collection of appetites. So if you really want to know what a fish thinks, just think food. I mean, a fish never really reflects on where his life is headed. You know, he doesn't question why he's here. A fish is simply a stomach, a mouth, and a pair of eyes. That's it. And it's amazing to me how dumb fish are, right? I mean, think about this. Hey, hey fish, I want you to eat this lure. It's not real. You think it's going to nourish you, but it's really going to trap you. And it's just going to be a matter of time before the enemy reels you in. But fish never notice. I mean, fish have been falling for this lure thing for thousands of years. And you'd think they'd, you know, they'd kind of wise up. And here's the irony. What do we call a group of fish that hang out together? 
A school, yeah. Fish spend their whole lives in school and they still never learn, right? And the bedrock for what Jesus is going to say today is this. Listen, you are more than a collection of appetites. You are more than a stomach and a mouth and a pair of eyes. You are image bearers. The image of God is in you. So here's what Jesus says. You've heard... He's getting ready to to, uh, quote one of the Ten Commandments. In this culture, you quoted Moses. You didn't disagree with Moses. But Jesus is going to do just that. Here's what he says. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery uh, with her in his heart. Now, most of us know what adultery is. Adultery is no sex outside of marriage. Adultery is synonymous with things like betrayal and deceit and unfaithfulness. It does irreparable damage to people, to marriages, to the children of those marriages, to the relationships within that family. And so it's never to be a part of God's plan. And some of you are here today and you know firsthand how painful it is when, when that's been a part of your household. And uh, what's so interesting to me is, you know, if we were just, it would be pretty easy, I think, for a lot of us in the room to think that just because we haven't committed adultery, that we're living surrendered to God with our sex life. So Jesus moves beyond our behavior and he goes right to the heart because the changed hearts are what the kingdom of God is all about. And so he says that anyone who looks at someone else for the purpose of lusting after them has committed adultery with that person in their heart. What he's talking about is the look, the gaze, the lingering gaze. Now, not that you've probably never done this yourself, but you probably have seen someone else do this, right? Kind of linger and follow a man. So so when a man, for example, does this, the look... He's not thinking of this woman as somebody, as a person. He's not thinking of her as somebody's mom or somebody's sister or somebody's daughter. He's not thinking of her as someone who needs Jesus or who needs prayer. He's certainly not thinking of her as an image bearer of God. No, she's just body parts. He's using her to fulfill his own desire. He's not praying for her. He's not asking God to bless her or to be kind to her. He is undressing her for his own pleasure. Now let me be clear. I want to talk about what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus does not mean here that just looking at someone and noticing that they are attractive He's not saying that's wrong. He's not saying that is sinful. I mean, the sense of attraction, right? Chemistry between two people, sizzle, sexual desire. That is hard. All those things are hardwired into us by God. And that is, those things are good things in the right context. So noticing that someone is attractive is normal and natural, But here, Jesus is is talking more about looking for the purpose of lusting. 
And this is an important distinction because sometimes this gets translated something along the lines of any man who looks lustfully at a woman and people think, well, man, if that means I'm not supposed to have any kind of sexual attraction or sexual desire, I'm, I'm like, I'm out. I mean, I could never do that. I wouldn't even want to do that. So I want to point out that noticing that someone is attractive is completely different than beginning to undress them or fantasizing about them in your mind. We're talking about the length of your gaze, something beyond just initial attraction. Now I also want you to remember that in the kingdom of God, uh, the concern is that God's will is done right? The kingdom is the realm of God's reign. And so lust always leads, always, always leads to sexual brokenness, which has no place in the kingdom of God. Let me just give you some examples of where lust can take you. So I'm on the board of a ministry I have been for several years called Hope Center Indy. Their sole purpose is to come alongside women who have been sexually trafficked. That's a thing. And it's sickening to me how many women have been affected by this. So here's the way this works. Usually men, but not always, men will take women and children and exploit them sexually for their own perverse pleasure and gain. Like that's a thing? Yeah, that's a thing. Um, lust, think about it this way, lust is what sexual harassment is all about. I mean, things like crude remarks, suggestive statements, gestures, the misuse of humor, groping, propositions, all of those things come from hearts that are rotted by lust. And here's the thing about lust that's so important, and I think it's why Jesus goes here. If I don't recognize the lust that exists in my own heart, if you, don't, if you don't recognize the lust that exists in your own heart, you will get all judgmental and all superior. And uh, because you will come to believe that your sexual sin is somehow better than everybody else's sexual sin. You'll get all uptight about this and all concerned about everybody else's junk while ignoring all of your own. And isn't it true, another problem with lust is that identities can get formed around the idea of attracting the look. And of course, the older you get, the more expensive it gets to be able to do that, right? Think about this. One of the largest industries of our day is fueled by lust. The pornography business is big, big business. There's no bigger business around the world than pornography. Millions and millions of hours and billions of dollars devoted to adult websites and movies. And I want to be clear because I'm going to say something that's going to shock some of you. And I, I, want you to, and I want you to get past it and think about it. But this comes directly from a book by a guy, from a guy by the name of Jay Stringer. He wrote a book called Unwanted. It's an incredible book, and he, 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 he has the research to back this up. Here's what he says. Two things. Pornography is violence against women. Always. Pornography is violence against women. And then the second thing he says, 
And the sex industry allows us to choose the level of degradation that we can tolerate. So pornography is violence against women and the sex industry allows us to choose the level of degradation that we can tolerate. This is why when you're talking to somebody about porn, sometimes they'll say something like this, oh, I'm not into the hard stuff. See, that's what they're getting at. They're trying to say, hey, I'm not, a, I'm not an abuser of women, right? See, do you know what the number one thing that married couples fight about the most Okay, it's not sex, it's money, but sex is number two. So uh, here's, I just want to kind of tell you a story that I think really well illustrates kind of the allure of sex. So there was a country church, congregation of about 50 or 60, and one morning the pastor was preaching, and he just came up with this idea. He said, hey, I'm going to mention a few words, and every time I mention a word, I want to see if you, the congregation, can, can come up with a song that illustrates that word. So the first word the pastor threw out was the word grace, and immediately several people yelled out, amazing grace. Second word the pastor yelled out was cross. And almost immediately, people said, the old rugged cross. The third word the pastor used was blood. And after a few moments, that was a little harder. Somebody stood up and said, nothing but the blood. And the fourth word the pastor mentioned was sex. It was dead silence. I mean, it's crickets. But after five or six seconds, a woman in her 80s stood up and at the top of her voice started singing. Daniel, Daniel I don't remember the song. Precious memories, yes. That's what she sang. Thank you, Daniel, for that reminder. Awesome. Yeah, precious memories. See, this is just uh, part of it, isn't it? Listen, one of, the, one of the greatest and most powerful addictions of our day is fueled by lust. And it can show up in, in people who appear in control on the surface, but have deep sexual regrets or hurts or habits or histories that are much heavier because they are so ashamed that they carry that all by themselves. See, when we sing a song like, Jesus, you, you rescue me, that's what we're talking about. He, you know, that, that men and women don't have to bear that shame by themselves anymore. Jesus came to alleviate that. He came to eliminate that. I mean, the reality is there are probably some men and women in this room who've endured things like molestation or sexual abuse or even rape because of lust. So Jesus says, well, who's got problems? Well, all of us do. I mean, because if everybody here who wrestled with or has been hurt by sexual sin were to be removed, I'd be speaking to a completely empty room. Come to think of it, I wouldn't even be speaking in this room. Because this is all of us. This is every heart in the room. And lust, Jesus says, is so serious that he gives what seems like at first extreme advice. Matthew 5, 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
Uh, so he goes right from sex or from lust to hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So one minute he's talking about lust. The next thing you know, he's talking about people going to hell. What is happening here? Well, remember that the kingdom of God is any place where God reigns, where God's rule is being done, where God's will is happening, where it's always done. So if there's a sphere both out there somewhere and here on earth where God's will is always done, then there is also a sphere where all is not as God intends, where everything is opposed to God. And the Bible's word for that is hell. Hell is that sphere where God's will is rejected and God's presence is unwanted. See? And so just as the kingdom of heaven can come and invade this earth, so can the darkness of hell. And I'll prove it to you. Years ago, there was a report from Amnesty International that came out that was deeply disturbing to me. The title of the article was, When Did Rape Become a Military Weapon? It talked about rape as a part of warfare, not done by just a few soldiers here and there, but as something that's been happening for many, many decades in a lot of sub-Saharan countries and even a few others where rape is actually adopted as a deliberate military strategy executed by whole armies against whole villages of women now numbering in the hundreds of thousands. It's deliberately chosen, it's deliberately ordered as a means of destroying community life, terrorizing and demeaning whole people groups. And this really happens in our world to women the age of my daughter, committed by men the ages of my sons. I mean, when I read that, I thought that is a perfect depiction of hell. That, something like that has no place in this world. I mean, what has to happen to someone's humanity to make them capable of that? See, Jesus' point here, friends, is not that you ought to mutilate yourself if you find yourself lusting after some, somebody. His point is that we need to become the kind of person that would rather mutilate ourselves rather than harm, hurt, or use someone else in a sexual way. I want to say that again. This is so important to understand. Jesus' point is not that you ought to mutilate yourself if you find yourself lusting after somebody. It's that you should be becoming the kind of person who would rather mutilate yourself rather than harm, hurt, or use someone else in a sexual way. That's his point. Jesus' point is that something serious, even hellish and dark, starts to happen when you start treating another people as an object, as just a bunch of body parts. That has no place in the kingdom of God. And here's why. And it's so important to understand this vision. And it's a beautiful vision. God has a vision for a new humanity where women and men with transformed hearts would live together in a new community in Christ where they honored the image of God in one another, where they treated one another like brothers and sisters only without all the arguing. See, that's the goal. 
That's the goal. That's God's goal for humanity. And lust can sometimes stand in the way of that in a big way, can't it? So how do we get there? Well, it always starts with a commitment. It always starts with a commitment. Like, am I going to allow God to change my heart in this area or not? Am I going to surrender my sex life to God or not? And I remember when Jackie and I got married, and I thought to myself, hallelujah, my struggles with sex are over. Sure, I have lots of other problems in my life that marriage won't solve, but at least as a husband, I'm not going to have any more problems with lust or sex because I kind of figured that when you got married, life was just one nonstop e-ticket thrill ride to fantasy land. And you know what I'm talking about, right? That was my thought of marriage. And then I actually got married. We had one kid, then another, then another, and you know what? It wasn't always fantasy land. A lot of times it felt like tomorrow land. There were times it even felt like Neverland. Aren't you impressed by how I work Disney references into this sex talk? Here's what I'm telling you. I found that getting married did not solve my appetite for sex. It did not. But I came across a statement in the book of Job that was so helpful to me. At one point, Job's uh, talking to a friend, and here's what he says. He said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. In other words, I made a covenant with God. How then could I look at a young woman? The version I memorized so many years ago said, says it this way. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. And um, I, I have buried that verse in my heart. And, um, and I'll, I just want to walk you through how I try to apply that to my life. Let's say you're at a health club. You see a shape. You notice that the shape is attractive. So there's the initial, okay, well, then you, so then, but then, then it moves from, oh, wow, I'm going to keep my eyes on that shape. I find that shape appealing, right? So um, here's what you do, men and women. You bounce the eyes. You learn to bounce the eyes. So you look, then you go, oh, man, I don't need to be looking at that. So you look away. You look at something else. You focus on something else in the room. It could be, it could be a dog. It could be a cow. It could be anything but a cat. Don't ever look at a cat. That's not good for you, right? But you're going to just bounce the eyes. It could be a flower if you're outside. Uh, something I often do if it's outdoors or at a beach. Like I'll bounce my eye to a beautiful tree or a beautiful cloud or a beautiful, uh, you know, flower or something. But you just bounce the eyes. Just practically, right? That's how you can kind of honor that. But, you, but essentially, every person in this room has to get to a point where we say, I want, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to live this way. So you learn to bounce the eyes. In fact, I would say that part of the reason it's so important to be part of a small group um, is because it gives sexually broken people, and that's all of us. Jesus has already outed all of us as sexually broken, it gives all of them a chance to enter into accountability with other believers about the kind of sexual choices that they make. And here's why that's so important. Because we live in a culture where sex and lust sell. 
And so it is so important for followers of Jesus to stand firm in this area. And let me tell you, here's the raw, uncensored truth about lust. Lust, just like that fishing lure, promises freedom. Hey, you can gratify your sexual appetite without cost. It won't hurt anybody. See a fly, want a fly, eat a fly. That's us. Lust promises freedom. But friends, it makes you a slave. It does. Every time. This is how people get addicted to things like pornography and sex. And let me just ask you a couple practical questions. Does looking at porn take your desire away? Of course not. It fuels it. It feeds it. Does having sex with someone take your desire for sex away? Well, everybody who's had sex in the room, you know the answer. Of course not. It only postpones your desire. It, it only delays your desire, right? It doesn't satisfy it or fulfill it. Here's what real freedom is, and it's so important that we understand this. Real freedom is not the ability to gratify every sexual appetite that you have. It is rather the internal freedom not to be mastered by your appetites. It is the uh, ability to stand above your appetites and not be mastered by them. Here's what I'm saying to you. You are something more than a stomach, a mouth, and a pair of eyes. You are made in the image of God. You bear his image. And so Jesus wants that kind of freedom. Not the ability to satisfy every sexual urge, but the ability to master that, to live higher than that, better than that, above that. And, and it's so important that we know that. Something else that's absolutely vital uh, in this area. So first we've got to make a commitment. Second thing is just living a life of deep, deep gratitude to God. And you go, well, pastor, what does gratitude have to do with lust? Well, everything. And I'll tease that out for us. See, every single one of us in this room have a need for soul satisfaction and if your soul doesn't find satisfaction in God's beauty and God's provision, your flesh will rise up and try to find satisfaction in all kinds of dark ways. It will. Uh, uh, I think we become vulnerable to lust when we're dissatisfied with our lives. This is why we talk about men and women having midlife crises, right? And the deeper our dissatisfaction, the deeper our vulnerability. Because every one of us in this room, we're meant to be paired with a satisfied soul. You can't live without it. And if you do not find soul satisfaction in God, you will look for it somewhere else. Here is what Dallas Willard says about this in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. If you want to do a deep dive into the Sermon on the Mount, I highly recommend this book. But here's what he writes. Failure to attain a deeply satisfying life always, always, always has the effect of making sinful actions seem good. And I just think that tr the truth oozes 
out of that statement. And here's why. Here's why things like love and lust can run so deep. Because there is a hunger inside of you and there is a hunger inside of me that is deeper than even the hunger of one body for another. And it is the hunger of a heart to be loved. It's the hunger of a heart to be loved. And lust bumps up into that. Lust is not love. But it is sometimes mistaken for love. So there's kind of a saying that goes around. And the saying is this. Women need to feel loved to have sex unless they're forced into it. Men need to have sex to feel loved. I'm going to say that again. Women need to feel loved to have sex. Men need to have sex to feel love. And so no wonder, right, there's all this confusion around, well, how does lust bump up against love? And like, what's the difference and all that? But what we're beginning to talk about here are the deepest need of the human heart that, that resides in all of us, men and women, which is the need to feel loved. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes about how, and you've probably seen this or maybe done, been guilty of this yourself, how couples, when they're deeply in love, they'll baby talk to one another. Some of you have seen that and you're like, right? But we've all seen couples do that. And, and, and why? Why do we do that? Well, C.S. Lewis says it's because baby talk is the tenderest language that we know. So it's, it, we use it to express the tenderness that, of our heart right? Some people use baby language to talk to their dogs. You ever seen anybody do that? C.S. Lewis says that's stupid. No, he didn't say that. I just, I totally made that up. He didn't say that at all. So listen, the tenderest need of the human heart, no matter how big you are, no matter how tough you are, no matter how masculine you are, no matter how smart you are, the biggest need, the yearning, the deepest craving of your heart is to be loved. And this is why it is so important that we put Jesus' teachings uh, about, uh, you know, that the Sermon on the Mount in the context of the kingdom. Because here's, here's the, what the kingdom's announcing. Look, our society would say this, blessed are the supermodels, blessed are the athletes, blessed are the wealthy, blessed are the trophy wives, blessed are the attractive, blessed are the powerful and the connected. And Jesus comes along with a completely different message. He says, no, blessed are the wrinkled, blessed are the misshapen, blessed are those who never got asked to the prom, blessed are the normal, blessed are the left out, blessed are the broken. Blessed are the shamed, because in me, the kingdom of God has now come to you. God's love has come for you. And that is the single biggest need of your heart. Blessed you are. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Not because you have every desire fulfilled. Blessed are you because you are more than just your desires. Blessed are you because you are more than just a stomach, a mouth, and a pair of eyes. Blessed are you because your deepest ache is to be loved by God and I have come precisely to show you that very kind of love listen you may have made horrible choices in this area of your life you may have violated your promises you may have betrayed your deepest values you may have shame and guilt and regret hear me 
Blessed are you. That's what Jesus' sacrifice is for. Because in Jesus, you are loved. And he came to demonstrate that love by dying on a cross to take the penalty that you deserve for just that kind of sin. And blessed are you because in Jesus there is no sin God cannot forgive and there is nothing in all creation that can separate you from his love. And so here's what I want to do in the last couple of minutes that we have together. I just want to pray because this is all of us, right? All of us are sexually broken. All of us have hearts that have been hurt and hardened and bent by uh, this thing called sex. And so uh, I just want to pray for all of us and uh, ask God. And I want to ask you if you'd be willing to begin to pray a prayer along the lines of, God, would you begin to shape and change my heart? God, would you help me, give me the resolve to want to turn over the keys to this part of my life to you? You're driving, not me anymore. So let me pray for us. If everybody would just bow your heads. Well, Heavenly Father, you know the truth about every heart and story in this room. You know every hidden hurt. You know every abuse endured. You know about that rape. You know about that molestation. You know every addiction to pornography and sex. You know how it is for people who face temptations today that they find so overwhelming. Would you help those people? Would you remind them, as your word says, that no temptation has overtaken them, but such as is common to man. But you're always faithful. And, you know, you'll show us a way out so that we can stand up under it. God, you know how it is for people that are trapped in yesterday's abuse or yesterday's bad choices. God, would you walk with them? Would you be kind and good to them? Would you readily share with them your grace and your mercy? Lord Jesus, would you walk with each one that in this moment would confess their need for you? And so I just want to invite all of you in the room, all of you who have that, that sexual brokenness, just in your spirit, just in, you know, in that inner voice, just acknowledge, God, I, I do need you. I've not done this right. I've not handled this well. I want more. I want better. And then, Lord, I just ask that, you know, would you pardon and cleanse all those here this morning that would ask for that pardoning and that cleansing? And so, again, just in your spirit, would you say, Lord Jesus, you know, I've fallen far short in this area. Will you help me do better? Thank you for your forgiveness. You say that in Christ, we, I have the forgiveness of sins. Help me to reach out and to take hold of that. And then finally, God, would you take us in this room, would you make us men and women who would rather be mutilated than to use someone else to satisfy a sinful sexual desire? Would you change our hearts around this subject, oh God? Change our hearts. We give our hearts to you. 
We ask you to give them back to us new, washed, clean, soft, open. God, that's a work that's too, it's too big for us. It's too hard. It's too heavy for us. We're powerless to do it. But you, you are the Lord and nothing is too difficult for you. So change our hearts, oh God, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, all God's people said, amen. amen. So here's what uh, John says in 1 John 3. Oh, so I want to invite our prayer team to come up. Um, listen, I want to invite you, if you're here today and you would like, because some of us have endured some tough stuff as it relates to being on the wrong end of someone's lust. And so if that's you and you would like personal, individual prayer, our prayer team is going to be up here on both sides of the stage. I want to invite you, please, please come and let us pray. This could be the beginning of a healing journey for you. I really want to plead with you uh, to take that step if you need be. Um, so that's going to be available for everybody. But in the meantime, let me just give you a benediction. And then the rest of us, after this benediction, can begin to stack chairs. That would be amazing. That might make some of us want to go for prayer a little more, right, just to get out of stacking chairs. So here's what John says. He says, everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we've come to know love. He, meaning Jesus, laid down his life for us. So we should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now this is his command. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And that we love one another as he commanded us. And so now may you know his love. May you walk in that this week. And may you know his peace and his trust. God bless you guys. Thanks for worshiping with us this week.